0: Welcome to this bonus episode of the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. We had such a great discussion with Andy Davis and NOVA that we kept the tape rolling a lot longer than we usually do. In last week's first part, we talked about starting and supporting companies, but now we turn our attention to the EIS industry. His idea for generating market portfolios in venture capital raises a lot of topics that are very relevant for investors. If you're any interest in the pros and cons of investing in EIS funds, particularly diversification, then this is definitely for you. If you join the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe on all good podcast services, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you have any suggestions for future topics, then you can email us at inquiries at hardmanandco.com. So one of the things I ask everybody on the podcast is what would you change about the EIS industry? Now, you have had this idea that I I first heard you speaking about at a conference last year about investing in the market and i think it would be worth digging into that a little bit so can you perhaps float what this idea is and we can maybe discuss some of the pros and cons yeah, of how I it mean, might work
1: there's a common theme really for me and it's interesting actually i talked about this a little bit the other week with um um on i was on a, a panel with uh, you know the, the enterprise investment scheme association and i think someone knew me afterwards call me and said, "Andy, you sounded like a communist on that." And I'm, I'm, not, I'm definitely not a communist. I'm—I I'm, suppose I am not from this industry, so I look at it from the outside, looking at in, and I look at what it's supposed to do. And what it's supposed to do is provide a great return to investors for invest and and for investing in a particular sector that the government want the money to go into, and that's why we have the incentives. And that sector happens really to be high growth knowledge intensive uk startups and i think sometimes everyone's a bit a bit too close to it to to sort of realize that a little bit and i think it looks like a cottage industry at the moment it's not got doesn't demonstrate any of the attributes that a mature industry demonstrates and i'm sounding awfully critical here but what and i'm not doing some great stuff going on but what i mean is there's so much room for improvement i think it's like a cottage industry um, I think there's quite a lot of protectionism and people seeing each other as competitors. And and actually, there's just a, there's a much bigger picture here. And I think I'll come on to that a little bit, but one, one of the things that I think that you're alluding to that I've said is probably about we need to enable our investors to buy the market. And the reason for that is that...
0: What do you mean by buy the market?
1: If I go to my financial advisor, I'm a wealth manager, and he's managing my money for me, there's a good chance that a large amount of it is going to go into some kind of tracker-based product that tracks the stock market. That's probably the sensible place to put a lot of money. You know, Now, there is a market for unlisted businesses that just isn't a tracker product that allows you to back them up. And we should be creating one of those to it. Or, or that, that, that should be almost the end goal for the industry. And the reason for that is it's so high growth. I think you've, you've probably heard me quote this before, and the, the data's probably changed since I last read the report, but I think Bohurst produced some data in 2017 where they looked at five or 600 SEIS CIS qualifying tech companies in the UK, and they'd found that if a passive product existed that allowed you to stick 10 quid into every one of them, you'd have seen, I think it's 34, but it's 30 odd percent growth year on year for the six or seven years they looked at it. That's just ridiculous growth. Now, even if they're wrong and it's only 15%, it's ridiculous. So for me, I'm going, how do how do we as an industry best serve our source of capital? And our source of capital is people that want to in, in, invest in this sector. Often it's for tax advantage reasons. And they also capital preservation, although that's a dirty word, is in their mind, you know what I mean? They don't they don't want to um, be taking unnecessary risks. If as an industry, we present effectively what amounts to a tracker product for you know, the UK unlisted tech market, that's like a must buy that perfectly suits the needs of our investors. So my view is, is actually, if that's what perfectly suits the needs of our investors, and it unquestionably does, why as an industry aren't we trying to deliver it for them? You know, we, we, we absolutely should be. If you look at, you know, well, how do you get there? Well, I mean, if you, if you, again, if you look at this data about, you know, this 34% growth year on year, what we also know is 90% of these companies are failing within three years. So actually, you've got um, all of the growth coming from less than 10% of the companies. And actually, when you look again, the Pareto effect in force, so actually, 80% of that growth is coming from, you know, 20% of those. So that then tells you, well, right, if you really want exposure to this growth, you've got to be in more than 100 companies, like mm-hmm. more than 100. I think I read somewhere someone did some size and analysis on it, and I think if you look at um, portfolio construction for something like, like an aim-listed product, because you've got lower volatility, if you cover 30 stocks beyond that, you, you don't really gain much benefit.
0: I, I Personally, I think the answer is 40.
1: But... Well, yeah, okay, but you know what I mean? It's like 30 yeah. or 40. But for our sector, it's a 40, right? You, you know what I mean? It's more than that. It's more. And who's as a fund manager? Who's given people that? Like I, I'll give people maybe twenty in a year. Um, I know other people, and we're probably a little bit at the high end.
0: In, in EIS, nobody's doing that. Even VCTs, where you've you've got to some extent an existing portfolio. Some of the largest ones are approaching hundred, but some of that's because they've got a pile of dead ones at, at the bottom the portfolio, which which don't count anymore.
1: yeah. So. Most EIS funds are going to say we'll back five or we'll back 10 or some or 20. But the reality is, is I can't give you enough diversity. You know, if I've got a sales team, I should not be approaching wealth managers and financial planners and advisors and saying we're better than everyone else. If your client's got £50,000, give it to us. I shouldn't be saying that. I should be saying give us 10 and do the 40 with another, you know, with another, another group of Group of people. I don't think anyone out there saying that, right? (laughs)
0: Um, I, I must say, I am when I say that to advisors. If someone's got the capital invest, because you know we do have investors who, if you've only got ten thousand, then you're kind of limited to you know investing in one
1: manager. But if you, if you've, and that's that. By the way, that is terrible. You look at it. The FCA are not thinking that through. You, You know, realistically. That's terrible for investors. They're thinking, you know, oh, well, what we're going to do is we're going to stop restricted investors from being tempted into this space by upping the, the minimum investment that we're comfortable with to ten grand. But all it means is, as you say, someone who's got ten thousand pounds puts it in one product, they get a diversified portfolio with five to ten. That's just not right. Really, they should be even if it's ten grand, it should be a thousand into ten different, you know, into ten different. Products.
0: I think there's another interesting thing of diversification, which I'll maybe mention. There's a guy called Jerry Neumann. Who's a Silicon Valley guy who does some sort of quant work in this space, and he's done work on venture capital returns as power distributions. And one of the features that he picked up, and this is kind—he of, did it theoretically—is that the better your diversification, the better the return, because at the the nature of these things, as you capture, you're more likely to capture a winner. You know, you're more likely yeah. to get a Google or a Facebook or whatever the could. ARM in the UK, I guess, would be the equivalent. And just by being more likely to get one of those, that in itself tips the return because of the shape of the distribution. What was kind of interesting was Syndicate Room did some work with Bohurst and they published a report two or three years ago where they did some simulations. And they actually found in practice you get the same thing, where the bigger the portfolio, the bigger your expected return.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Bit- Makes perfect sense to me. Yeah. I mean set. I mean it's just if the market's doing thirty-four on average and ninety percent of them are failing, the bigger your portfolio. I'm sure there's a where I'm sure someone could do some data where it tops out and goes you don't need more than a thousand. But we are so far away from that, it isn't true.
0: And and as you say, there is actually there isn't a thousand. I mean, Bohurst presu- I've got reservations about, you know, the data around the edges. They're not finding a thousand companies a year raising money I think
1: probably not yeah exactly certainly not, not ones that would fit our criteria and then at the same time though you know we've got seven is it seventy odd managers in the market at the moment and mm-hmm. that's why I'm saying it's like a cottage industry and if an advisor wants to I mean God you've seen what the forms are like I mean if an advisor wants to place money with five different you know managers it's just like it's just you know a small forest gets you to know, cut down to service that and what are we doing about it it's it's absolute nonsense and then if you look at like the because all of this this shitness for be a better <laughs> word right, <laughs> this stuff we should improve it's actually really really inhibiting the growth of our own industry and i've got some really interesting data that our um, our cmo shared with me and his name's Alastair Marston. And I really like his thinking about this. This industry, we are still operating from a push strategy, right? Look at the chain and we're going, well, there's the fund manager, there's the advisor, there's the client. And the fund manager sells and marketing strategies to influence the advisor who then chooses whether to recommend to the client or not. It's completely the wrong way around. As an industry, we should be adopting a pull strategy. We should be adopting the end individual. We should be influencing and educating them that they actually, this is a category of assets they want to invest in and that the tax reliefs are amazing. And they should be going to their advisor and going, why are you not recommending them to do this?
0: Um, And by the way, I've I've done some work on the side about showing what happens when you add venture capital to an investment portfolio and the risk of return. A little bit of venture capital can actually make a significant difference to your risk return characteristics as well.
1: Yeah. This data that Alistair pulled out, he went, right, we've got 30,000, let's call them financial advisors in the UK, less than 1,000 of them are right in SEIS and EIS Mm -hmm. business. There's half a million high net worths or half a million people in the UK for whom this is appropriate, but only 30,000 of them are are actually investing. Now, if you think about the the market when you've not got Brexit and elections and COVID and whatever, Mm -hmm. raises about 2 billion pounds, it means you've got about sixty thousand pound per investor. That seems to be the, um, the, the average amount mm-hmm. that they're investing. So if you multiply that numbers up, those numbers up, you know, you end up in a situation where actually we could have a thirty billion pound a year industry here, rather than a two billion pound a year industry. And the only reason we haven't is that we're not either influencing more IFAs or you know to to um, recommend this these types of products or we're not educating them enough about why it's right. We're not making it easy enough for them. We're not educating them why it's actually not risky. It's not risky if you've got a big enough portfolio. We're not making it easy for people to buy a portfolio. And actually, ultimately, we're not educating our our end punter about all of that. And let's face it, you know, millennials and generation, whatever we're on now, they're all self-service individuals. They're going to go on the internet. They're going to find this out. They're less reliant on, you, you, you know, on an individual for advice. We should be able to influence these people. And, and and coming back to what I probably said at the start of this, when maybe the, the typical fund manager's view is, you know, it's like build assets under management. The easiest way that every fund manager in, in this country can improve and grow the size of their business is by growing the size of the market. You know, I mean, if you turn 2 billion into, forget about 30, say you only ever get to 20 billion, it's a tenfold improvement. It doesn't matter whether you're, if you do a bell curve around who's going to take the share of that, it doesn't really matter where you lie on the bell curve, your business is still growing. And the the only way we can do that is by collaborating with each other. We need to be collaborating in terms of how we educate our distribution, if you like. We need to collaborate on how we're going to um, educate the end punter. We need to make it really easy for people to buy multiple products in a digital manner, we need to standardise on things that are just hygiene factors, like fees. Like, why are people charging different fees in this sector? Like, why are they? What? Like, what's the point? There should be one fee structure. Everyone should sign up to it. No one needs to talk about fees ever again. It's off the table. It, it that's just another thing that confuses people. You know, all all our are a mess in this industry. I <laughs> know they are. Yeah, and they shouldn't be. And It should just be. And all of our and it distracts from the messaging. And the messaging has to be portfolio spread, right? That's the single biggest thing that's going to drive return. And anything anyone says about anything else is just a distraction. So standardize on fees so it's not a discussion. Standardize on the way that people subscribe. Why have we not got a platform yet? I know there's people like Cuba that are you know, having a go at this, but I think probably, I've not said this to Mark, but I think EISA should be doing, we should have, you know, we should have, uh, you know, a, a platform that's maybe not for profit that allows you know, intermediaries and direct investors to buy, to buy everything. And it should just be, yeah, there's my client details. I'll have that, 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 that. And the other thing we should be doing while I'm on my soapbox <laughs> is, is when I was when I was on this call the other day, I was on it, Deep Bridge Capital are on it and Calculus are on it. And they're both organizations that I have a tremendous amount of respect for. And they do very well. They're also, all three of us are very different. And invest in different parts of this market. And we've got no common vocabulary in, in, in the UK to, discu- to, to to talk about, like, what does Series A mean, and what's seed, and what's pre-seed, and...
0: I, follow, these terms are a bit flexible. I mean, you, you talk about, in Silicon Valley, the, the inflow of money has changed the definition of these. What used to be a Series A in Silicon Valley, in terms of scale, is now, now see, a seed.
1: Yeah, Just exactly. And all right, maybe these things are always going to change. Mm-hmm. We should have like a matrix, right, of these different stages. And all of our people who participate as investment managers should be in one of the squares on that matrix. And we should be saying, dependent on someone's risk profile, where their funds should be spread within this matrix. You know what I mean? People need to realize.
0: Versus later stage sort of thing. You yeah, might. and everything
1: in the middle, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and also maybe cover off some sector stuff. And this tooling should be really easy for us to build. It should be really easy for us to build. We build the tool, and we sort the fee structure out, we create the educational material as an industry, and we create pull from the end. end we turn 2 billion into 20 billion. And actually, we, we deliver for our investors because they get spread across everything and they hit 30% growth year on year.
0: Hopefully.
1: Before we have the tax reliefs, it's, uh, you know, it, it'd be the most. It's, it, for me, and maybe it's just the way I think, it's an absolute no-brainer. It's a 12-month project. So
0: at the high level, I love this idea because I think this is, I mean, so much of what you talk about, about diversification and, 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 and whatever, as you're a I love. When I start thinking about some of the implementation things, I think there's questions that get raised I'm gonna throw some of these at you, see see what your thoughts are. So yeah. one is if I look at VCTs at the moment, for example, not all, but most VCTs are sitting on cash that they, they're struggling to deploy. And one of the reasons VCT returns, I think, are frankly disappointing as a whole. I mean, there's there's exceptions, is that they're sitting on so much cash that's a drag. And when yeah. I speak to VC managers, it's like, well, we're not raising some of the good ones in particular. I think, are saying, well, we're not raising more money or limiting the amount of money because we can't deploy it. Do you really think there is twenty billions worth of opportunities for us in this sector?
1: I think you may be right. There might not be. But what's certain is that if you've got, you know, there's it's like all of these things, isn't it? You move some boundary conditions and then you work out where you know where where, where the market is. I mean, it probably can be bigger well i mean who knows is the answer what i do know is that the british business bank is there with funding regional co-angel funds because it thinks there's an equity gap the funding ecf funds because they want to get more money into the hands of fund managers that will exist in an equity gap so i suppose people that have spent a lot of time gathering data and are able to influence the government are influencing billions of pounds into this space not via seis or eis so that for me, I'm kind of going. Well, there's a state intervention here. There's not even SEIS and EIS, so that's a sign for me that there's 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 room for more capital to be deployed. Um, yeah. I could quantify it. I don't know. So, it, and I get it. You know what I mean? It's like we've got supply side and demand side. I think we could grow supply side 15 fold if we got our act together. Could could we scale demand 15 fold? I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is that in Northern California, they don't seem to struggle deploying. You know. Huge volumes of money. And
0: and actually... If supplies there, would you think demand would appear to fill some of
1: that? Yeah, I think nature abhors a vacuum. So yeah, I think as long as you're still able to to deliver th- those types of returns or good returns, then yeah, I think it would. I think the other thing you need to think about is that we think about EIS and SEIS as it, it's for backing UK startups. What does that really mean? I mean, we've backed a guy who's British Pakistani and his business partner is from Hong Kong. And it's a med tech business that is incorporated in the UK. And we're testing his product out in Lahore. And actually, the target market for the business is the developing world. It's completely EIS compliant. Um, you couldn't run the business in the UK because the the, the regulations around um, the NHS, et cetera, wouldn't allow you to. But well, there's nothing to stop us incorporating the business in the UK, funding it in the UK, resourcing it in the UK, benefiting from research and development tax credits in the UK, but monetizing the rest of the world. And one of the fintechs that we backed I mean it was a bit irregular this because it ended up being ended up ended up being a Delaware company. But it was a British founder and an American founder. And, you know, originally incorporated in the UK, funded here, resourced here. We the UK is a fantastic place to in, incorporate businesses that are going to service the rest of the world. We've got a legal system and a regulatory system that, well, it depends on whether we decide to break international law or not. It, uh, you, you know, it's, it's, it's held out throughout the world as being first rate. You know, no one's ever going to go, oh, I don't want to incorporate in the UK. So we've got an opportunity to build businesses that service, that service a global economy here.
0: Another question that I have about this is, somewhere along the line, there's got to be some sort of selection process. So I look at two examples I know of of, of Perhaps this idea on a smaller scale. So one is the syndicate room idea. So particularly the 2028 20, fund that they had, where they had a crowdfunding platform and then a fund that basically match funded. So if money was raised in a crowdfunding platform, they would match it from the fund. If no money was raised in a crowdfunding platform, they the fund wouldn't, wouldn't fund it. And you got something like Scottish Investment Bank, who have in essence, selected some management houses in Scotland. And if they fund, they will, again, match fund. Yeah. Now, in what you're doing, truly passive doesn't work because you can't fund any oil, anybody who comes along. There's got to be some no, sort no. of filtering. So somewhere along the line, somebody's got to be selecting, which presumably you're relying on the fund managers here, but again, you would want somebody to be selecting the fund managers because you don't want Joe Blogs setting themselves up saying, I'm a fund manager, I automatically get funding uh, regardless.
1: Yeah. Well, I think like that – I totally agree with you, by, by the way. But I think that's like – those mechanisms kind of exist. Mm-hmm. They're just tweaking a little bit. I mean, if you look at it at the moment, if you want to get on panel for someone – they might do their own due diligence, but they rely on third-party due diligence. They re- rely on reports from Hardman and from, you know, Mike Hap and whoever else. You know what I mean? So there, there are people that are writing third-party research on, on funds, and I, I don't see why, why why you wouldn't use that as a route still. You know what I mean? You've got some some third-party people that write reports. They look for particular criteria, and they make a re- recommendation. I think, that, I think that happens already. I think in terms of how fund managers select businesses, I think there's different approaches and I think there's merit in many of them. I mean, like syndicate rooms, I like effectively it's entrepreneur-backed, isn't it? There needs to be a lead angel and actually the lead angel needs to be someone that they've researched who's successfully made money. What really entertained me is we've obviously, we've got two kind of significant shareholders in our business that are pretty, one's more high profile than the other. One's a guy called Bill Curry, who's an ultra high net worth. Made a lot of money in ASOS, a lot of money in the Hook Group, and various other. He's a really successful tech and e-tail investor. And the other guy, Sir Terry Leahy, who obviously needs more introduction, but it was interesting. We were talking to Syndicate Room, and they looked at our angels to see whether they qualified. And it was funny. I, I said, I said, Well, actually, Bill, you qualify. You're one of their luminary uh, entrepreneurs. I said, Terry, I'm sorry, you're not. <laughs> 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 so we all laugh about that but, but anyway i think their approach is good you know people who've made money are likely to make money again i think the lead engineer engineer approach lead lead, on, lead investor approach is a good one we have our method it's all it's very different from that but we have a method we think it works we're sticking to it syndicate rooms method i reckon works they're sticking to it everyone's got one of these and there's probably no right nor wrong it's just important that there is a selection criteria that people can evidence has worked for them. There's a lot of luck in this. Like, let's not get away from the fact that there's a lot of, of, of you know, they're called unicorns for a reason. The one. <laughs> yeah. So I think it just comes back to have a base level of competency that fund managers need to be able to demonstrate, have a base level of track record they need to be able to demonstrate, have a fee structure that people adhere to. So it's just it's just a hygiene factor. It's out of the question. Then make it easy for people to to deploy investors money across as many fund managers as possible for me it's just that that's the (laughs) it's it it looks easy to me i'm sure don't get me wrong the implementation of it would be tough and i think you touched on that a bit like you know what about the transaction like transaction friction cost you know but that that, that should all be driven out by tech
0: i mean i mean certainly as the industry is currently structured admin on that would be a nightmare but I hear what you're saying definitely in that it's not beyond the realm of man to create a system. We,
1: we had that. some great conversations with Goji and unfortunately they decided not to progress their kind of custodian platform into the SEIS and the EIS space, unfortunately, but their tech platform completely facilitates a transaction fee-less custodian offering. So ultimately you know you could deploy you could choose to deploy a hundred pound into a business and they wouldn't charge you for that deployment. so with with a tech platform like that, you push out all of the transaction friction around holding money and deploying money and reporting back to investors and holding share certificates and all of that. And that's one of the big variable costs in this. You can push all of that out. And again, I think like standardization illegals, et cetera. Well, I mean, seed legals are doing a pretty good job at standardizing legals, aren't they? You know, mm-hmm. so it, it, As you say, it's not beyond the ken of man to solve this. You look at other industries and what tech has done to enhance them, we're sat around the fire in caves at the moment in terms of <laughs> our utilization of technology.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of my previous interviewees on this podcast uh, made the point that for an industry that is focused on funding technology – the industry's use of technology is abysmal. It's non-existent,
1: you know, and we've like we've got an online portal, right, that allows people to onboard an investor. We do all the KYC and all of this sort of stuff. I've still got financial advisors going. Can you send us a PDF so I can get to, so we can fill the form out? And you're like, yeah, okay, we will because obviously we want you to invest with us and we want to make it easy for you. But for God's sake. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes no it's, it's, it's a really interesting idea and, and yeah hopefully I, I hope this idea gets traction because I think I think there's
1: something well, in it what, what I don't understand like I, I, if people listen to this right within our industry who I, I always try and put myself in the shoes of someone I might be arguing with what am I saying that is unpalatable to other people in the industry? I mean, if we had this conversation and we had the representative from all 70 of these firms that are there, who are the people who, would think, they're, who would think they're gonna lose from this? Because I can't figure out who they are. Do you know, I can't, I think it's got it's got it's gotta be good for everyone, it's gotta be good for the investor, it's gotta be good for the UK economy, it's gotta be good for you know the government, ultimately for the treasury and future you know, returns on jobs created and businesses sold and all that. If we if we sat around right the table and we were discussing what you and I have just talked about, who loses?
0: I think the standardisation of fees for some people, because there are some people whose fees are probably excessive. I think standardisation of fees would feel a threat to them. That's the only you know, and and then maybe the people who already have enough capital, they feel they can't deploy more capital. It's not a case of they're anti it, but there's just no reason to get involved. They're the two people i see who would go well
1: just coming back to your capital deployment thing i think i can understand the problem with vcts but the 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 product is structured very differently isn't Mm -hmm. it you know look at where the relief to the end investor is it's in tax-free dividends so so their approach to what they invest in is very different we're looking at long-term growth really
0: I think VCTs increasingly are as well. I mean, if we go back five years, you're probably right. I think since basic capital review, they are doing more of that. There's still a turnover of portfolios. There's still legacy investments in there as well for a lot of them. But I think increasingly what they're doing looks like what people in EIS are doing just maybe two or three years down the line for most companies. Yeah,
1: perhaps. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I mean, you're right. So maybe there's people out there who are nervous about full transparency on fees. But my view would be, well, I think, there's not that a dark corner we need to shine a light on, perhaps?
0: I'm big thumbs up to that one.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, also, it's like, if people are nervous about the fees in the here and now. They've got the wrong business model, right? Fees in the here and now are generated from deploying capital, right? And that, for me, doesn't necessarily create a great alignment with the end investor. It's like if I'm if I'm bothered about fees in the here and now, and I'm trying to grow the amount of capital I deploy all the time, that's to drive out fees that really should be about me not making not me making a profit, but actually me covering costs in the here and now. The fees that everyone is aligned on is the carry, you know, the carry instrument. Everyone is aligned on that, and I, and I, I think that needs to be, you know, kind of out in the open to be honest though it's not the bit if that if that was something that everyone was really sensitive about you might just have to go well actually in order to collaborate on this we might just have to leave fees alone i don't think this should be you obviously don't think this should be but i'd be like okay maybe you need to leave that alone if it allowed everyone to to collaborate in that manner where you had one platform people invested the hundred thousand pound and it was split across 50 fund managers or whatever if, if that allowed that to happen, it would be for the common good. The only problem, though, is that while there isn't transparency about fees, it's always going to be a conversation. People always ask about it. And what's the point? It's distracting the buyer from the real reason they mm. should be buying the product. Yeah.
0: Ab- absolutely.
1: I think you're dead right on that. So
0: we do have some other standard questions. So sure. So I've, I've kept you for a while. Can I keep you a few, few minutes
1: longer? Yeah, of course you can, yeah. Yeah, I'm okay. enjoying
0: myself. Great. <laughs> What was the most recent investment that you made, and why did you make it?
1: That's a good question. I'm probably embarrassed to not know the answer, really. The people in our team who make investments for us are a lady called Olivia Greenberg, who's our chief growth officer, um, and Darren Gowling, who's our chief investment officer. And they, they preside over our portfolio, really. I think investments that we are either have either recently made or ones that we are just about to make we've got an interesting one called cubunk and it's a really interesting example of a business that has pivoted due to covid so their premise was interesting originally and it was about people wanting to buy drinks in busy bars so you're on a night out you're with five people four of them order cocktails and you've got to go to the bar and wait half an hour and that ruins your night a bit. So the premise of this app was it's an app. You order your drinks on it. It works in every bar. And then you collect the drinks from a certain area of the bar. And the guy had built the tech out for this. He had a reasonable amount of traction. Um, mainly in Chester was where the locality where he was. It's very often good to locally test these things, because you can just search, tra- search traffic in a locality to get the app deployed, and you only need to a number of bars. And COVID happened. And he pivoted to a table service app. So, you know, that was really interesting for him. Um, and his business has grown, um, you know, quite a lot. I think last weekend they saved £100,000 worth of sales from to food and drink sales from, from pubs that are only doing, doing table sales. So that's neat. Obviously, we've talked about hygiene. We're really excited about that. Another one, I'm trying to think of things that are kind of a bit covid really. We've got business. What? It's flavor of the month is COVID. You know, so, and and also people are often asking us, how is your portfolio impacted by COVID? And the answer really is, well, it's not that big a deal because you've got kind of long development roadmaps on these businesses. They're not, you know, it's big businesses with existing operating models that are generating positive cash flows that get disrupted by this. So, so this, the UMI is, it's a mobile social network aimed at universities, and it's all uh, the premise of it was all about increasing student engagement because you know universities now know how much it costs them if a student drops out, and load you know because they're obviously they're fee paying etc. and a lot of students drop out because they can't kind of socially integrate, they don't find friends or people with common interests at, at university. So this app was aimed at that market. Uh, and it's changed slightly, or it's not changed, but it's benefited because of the whole, um, you know, uncertainty over the last six months about whether universities were going to reopen and were people going to be remote learning and were people going to be locked down in halls for two weeks that they can't, can't leave. And um, it's really resonated with people who are responsible in student services at universities and they've recently made made sales to three universities, which is which is really encouraging.
0: There's a classic triumvirate of market, product, and management. I think you've sort of already answered this, but which do you think dominates when you're investing?
1: That's a bit like a a religious debate, isn't it? And I'm I'm wary of getting into it. Politics, religion, and football should never be talked about with friends and family. Hmm. I, I mean, they're obviously all important, so we wouldn't talk about them. I mean, for us, product is possibly least important, which is interesting because most of what we are able to inject into a startup is the capability to build product but actually for us it's really important that the user and market is well understood there needs to be we need to understand the market who our buyer is who our user is where they fit in that market why they're buying what the existing alternatives are is the market big enough for us to have a business that can reach appropriate scale First and foremost, that's kind of what we're, we're we're looking at. And then in parallel when we look at management, as I say, there's sort of two aspects. there's our founder are they a good fit to work with us and do they understand this market? So we're establishing that very early. And then can we build an appro- can we put an appropriate team from within Nova around that person to, to be able to to service that model? And then comes product really. We talk about trying to find uncontested marketplaces or uncontested segments now if you do that your product can be pretty poor and you can be successful or start to be successful and that means you can release early which means you can learn more about your user and your market and then you iterate and you improve your product so for me it's probably i find it hard to pick between market and management but i think product follows after that
0: that's that's definitely an interesting answer tell us about a time you
1: failed and what you learned from it well, I think it did. I think <laughs> probably the first five years of my career when we were running the e-learning business. We talk about, in our business, managing failure, right? That, that's what we are actually in the business of. We make sure that we know what failure is going to look like, which means we're always running experiments. We know what failure looks like, and we fail quick, and we fail inexpensively, and that, that's really important, important for us. Everyone in our business is allowed to fail, and they're allowed to talk about it and that's really important because everyone learns from it and what you really need to avoid in a business is a culture of success theatre and success theatre is where people have meetings and write reports and everything's rosy and everything it, it happens loads in big companies in my, early in my career as a software engineer you'd end up in a project and you knew that it was it was going down the swanee and the idea was, is that you kind of like, you know, like, you know, every everyone on it was acting like it was going perfect, and in your mind, you were thinking, I need to get off this as soon as possible and get on to something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the so we sort of embraced the whole you know, the whole failure thing. But in terms of examples, myself, that, that that first one was such a massive experience for us. You know, building that tech company, growing the team, building product, growing the market, getting into another territory learning a whole load from that. And ultimately it failed, you know, on the box, it'll go failed, but actually we succeeded a hundred times in mm-hmm. that business. But we learned more from the things that didn't work than the things that did. And yeah, then we've just re, we've we, we've re, we reapplied that in our next portfolio. So that's probably the, the, the biggest and most illuminating time that I think I failed.
0: You, I think, are one of the best read people I know in EIS. Um, or at least you you're, you're one of the people who's most able to tell me what you've read um yeah. so in lockdown i've been reading books by the fistful or the handful or the bucketful tell, tell us a book that you like and would recommend to people
1: as you've probably realized i'm a I, you know i'm a kind of almost an evangelist for the lean movement mm-hmm. and then there's sort' 20 odd books i could talk about there and i think i'll give some pointers about things that are good, and then probably pick up on one book that I really like that's actually often overlooked. Mm-hmm. So the, the the key, like Eric Reese's Lean Startup, that's the that was kind of the top 10 bestseller that, that really kind of opened people's eyes to Lean. On really. my shelf? Yeah I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm glad it should be on everyone's shelf, really. But I think stuff that's really practically applicable to anyone running any business, really, is probably the works of two guys a guy called Ash Moyer, who wrote Running Lean and Scaling Lean. I think he's wrote the third book now. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, and then a guy, its a, it, well, the lead guy's called Alex Osterwalder. And there's a team of people that have got a business called Strategizer. And Alex came up with a concept called the, the Business Model Canvas, probably seven or eight years ago. They've wrote, I think, value proposition design. Um, there's a, 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 Anything from Strategizer, their blog posts, their podcasts, their books, all really, really valuable, and all stuff that you can apply actually apply in businesses. Again, the same, anything from Moya, yeah. really, really, really valuable. Eric Reese's title is more of a popularist one that sort of raises awareness. Those two guys, their books, and you know they do seminars, and you can go on workshops with them, and all that. All of their stuff's brilliant. But before that, I guess people who somebody really influenced them was a guy called Steve Blank, who's an, you know an entrepreneur, investor, and he was a lecturer at Stanford. So his first book, I think he wrote Four Steps to the Epiphany um, and then I think the Startup Owner's Manual and the difficult (laughs) (laughs) difficult reads. I I don't know, Steve. I I hope he never hears this. I don't want to offend him. But um, it's stuff that if you really want to get under the cover of what were people really thinking about at the start of this Mm -hmm. kind of thing, you read them. So I would be saying to anyone who knows nothing about Lean, just read the Lean Startup. And if your interest is piqued, look at the strategizer stuff from Osterwalder and Ash Moyer's stuff. Well, probably a book that I keep coming back to again and again, and I think it was published in 2004, is Blue Ocean Strategy. And I'm going to have to have a little look on a note because I can't remember who bloody wrote Blue Ocean. It's it's Renee Moorburn and uh, W. Chan Kim.
0: We'll put links to all these in the show notes anyway.
1: So, yeah, have have you heard of Blue Ocean Strategy before? I've heard the name. I haven't read it. It's good. It's got loads of practical examples. And again, probably plagiarized their phrase, finding uncontested market spaces. So what they talk about is most businesses are operating in red water. It's, it's contested. They know who their competitors are. They compete with them on price or on features or on brand or, or whatever. And businesses that really break out and become successful create uncontested market space. So they find the segment of the market that's massively underserviced by the incumbents or they find a new market or a hybrid market and they talk about some tooling you can use to do this. And we really like it because we are not white combinator, you know, so we are not going to go, Oh, well, you know, that, that, that ride share market, you know, and taxis, that looks like it's right for disruption, Mm -hmm. you know, and and let's do Uber or, you know, hotels, let's do Airbnb. We're not quite as well capitalized enough to do that. So we try we tend to find businesses that we back are looking for smaller, uncontested market segments around existing businesses. It's one that I think is under referenced and undervalued. I think Blue Ocean strategy.
0: Okay. You sold me, I'm gonna get a coffee and
1: definitely. You it's read. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You've spoken a lot about how your philosophy developed since you or or before you sort of started Nova. What do you wish you knew when you started Nova that you now know?
1: <laughs> all of it. <laughs> Does all of it count? You know, I think um, we we're very entrepreneur, execution, delivery focused. Really, I think stuff that. We would have benefited from really understanding five or six years ago was was much more this kind of access to finance space. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we should have had. uh, We we raised an angel round that took advantage of EIS back in two thousand and nine, I think, and then we raised another one that took advantage of Seis in twenty twelve, I think, whenever Seis first came out. You know, we had we had like two handfuls of investors in each of them, and we never really progressed that journey. We started working with other other investors. We kind of thought we'll, we'll stick to the knit and we know what we're good at, and we'd co invest with other investors. And while that's been great, we should have got closer to the money earlier. So the stuff we're doing and we've been doing for eighteen months, I wish we'd done that five years ago. We we would we would be so far further along our journey. We would be physically operating out of every city in the uk we'd be back in 100 startups a year we'd be operating overseas you know we'd be we would we would probably you know have somewhere in the middle east somewhere in asia uh, yeah then that that's the thing that i think i wish that i'd actually paid more attention to and got involved in and progressed much earlier was probably our our seis and eis fund well that that would have had the most profound impact on where we are now
0: You've been very generous with your time today, Andy. We very much no, appreciate no it. If anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing, how can they do that?
1: Yeah, if they just just go to our website, weonover.co.uk, and it's kind of segmented into for investors and advisors so they can read all about our messaging and our benefit the benefits of working with us there and it's all but then the other part of it is segmented to focus on potential founders so that people can have a look and see what the, the founder experience looks like for us you know what looks like from working from us so it's wearenova.co.uk just google nova you'll find us
0: excellent thank you very much andy it's great to have had a really interesting conversation so thank you for spending time with us today
1: likewise yeah thank you thanks very much for your time brian
0: If you missed our previous episode, you can look down on your player. And last week, we talked a lot about building and starting companies. As usual, show notes will be available with links at harmanandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like the podcast, then please give us a review and lots of stars on Apple Podcasts. You can also subscribe on all good podcast players and services. If you want more information or you got ideas for future episodes, then please email us at inquiries at harmanandco.com. Otherwise, thanks very much for listening.